What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, we are talking with singer, songwriter, and musician Dennis DeYoung. Many of you know Dennis as the former lead singer of the progressive rock band Styx. Dennis has since gone on to become a solo artist and will be touring this spring and summer to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Styx's epic album, The Grand Illusion. And this was a special treat for me because The Grand Illusion contains a song that Dennis wrote and sang, my favorite Styx song, and really one of my favorite songs of all time, Come Sail Away. To me, Come Sail Away was an invitation to transport out of whatever reality I was in and to dream big. The sound was fantastic and surreal. But Dennis, when I spoke with him, was far from dreamy and surreal. When we talked about how he achieved superstardom, he described a path that was grounded in practical, no-nonsense reality. Now at Hardcore Humanism, our goal is to help you discover your life's purpose and work hard to achieve it. And Dennis talks about a difficult topic and a pathway by which many of us find motivation in our lives, fear of failure. We are driven to outrun our demons. During our discussion, Dennis talks about how he harnessed that fear of failure to drive him to huge success with sticks and as a solo artist. And he also talks about what it was like when he finally achieved his goals and whether that actually filled a void or finally made him happy. So let's hear what Dennis had to say. We are here with Dennis DeYoung of Sticks, And I must say, growing up, when I wanted to escape into a world of fantasy, into a world of romanticism, into a better world. I went to Sticks and Dennis DeYoung's songs. So I owe him a debt of gratitude. Thank you, sir. Well, that's, that's exactly what I did. I used to escape into that same world because this one sucks. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the world and let's talk about escapism and fantasy and romanticism. When's the right time for it? When's the wrong time for it? Why don't we start with fundamentally, how did you get into that style of music? There's a lot of things that could have happened back when you started out. How did you get into that style? In the very beginning, all I ever did, listen, I'm a kid from the south side of Chicago whose mother loved the accordion. And so at seven, I started playing it. When I started writing songs, which was much, much later, all I tried to do was find some chords I liked and then stick some notes on those chords and then think up some lyrics to put on those notes give my point of view about my own personal life and the world I saw around me in the hopes that you would find yourself in my song. And so you did. And so when I did it right, people flocked to my door. And when I didn't do it right, they didn't. So that's all I've ever really done. I made everything up as I went along. In terms of romanticism and fantasy and all that, I would just say that I bounced back and forth between the romantic, the political, the observational. The romantic, of course, is based on my history of being married to the same girl for 50 years who I met in high school. And so any songs that are right that are about love in my relationship is completely dependent on the fact that I've known love in my life. I've experienced it, and I've just tried to express it the best I could. As far as romanticism and all that, or, you know, fantasy, some of the stuff we did was fantasy for certain. But I would say a lot of my stuff, Grand Illusion, was rooted in what I was observing in the culture and the things around me. So if you took it as fantasy and it helped you escape, I'm happy. Because, look, 
there are no litmus tests with any of my fans to like me. They don't have to pass an IQ test. They don't have to give me a urine sample. I'm simple. If you like me and you scratch behind my ear, I'm going to follow you anywhere. So I'm really just a guy who is trying to make sense of his own life and do it musically. And once in a while, people thought, well, that song's not about that character. That's about me. And that's when you're successful with songwriting. Can we talk about a couple of at least my favorite songs? And, and if you don't want to talk about what the meanings were supposed to be, I, I totally understand if you want to keep it up to the listener. But if you're okay with it, I wouldn't no. mind exploring a couple. Yeah, that's okay. I'm not Bob Dylan. I'm hardly <laughs> mysterious. There it is. I'm there for you to see. So tell me the songs that you liked. I bet I'm okay is one of them. I, I must say that for me, it all begins and ends with Come Sail Away. That is a very oh, special okay. song for me. Very special song for me. You tell me what you think it's about. <sighs> for me? I mean, yeah. all I know is that, is that whatever was happening in my life, I can't remember a time putting on that song. And wherever I started at the beginning, I ended in a place where I just felt like I could take on the world. I just felt like I'm going places. If I feel trapped, I feel like I'm out. If I feel like I'm down, I'm up. And I can't exactly tell you why. It's like, you know, you say you're, you've been married 50 years. Like, why do I love my wife? I, I could give you a few reasons on the surface, but the, the simple fact of the matter is I just do. Why does that song do it to me? It just does. I don't know why. I was kind of hoping that you might tell me, to be honest. Well, Cartman liked it from South Park. Jesus, he, the minute he starts singing, he can't stop until he gets to the end. So that's kind of what you just said. But Six had a long and difficult journey to get to the top of their profession. We were saddled by incompetent management and idiotic record companies. Our first one, Wooden Nickel, that I think that says it all about them. We recorded four albums and had really no success at a time when you could get away with that stuff. So we slowly and gradually rose the ladder of fame. Lady, which was supposed to be on the first album, was kept off till the second album. And when it was released initially, it was a complete and total stiff. Now, this is the first song I ever wrote and sang by myself on a record. And that album, it was on Sticks 2, had seven songs, five of them were mine. And the album, it didn't sell. And so, as a young man, I thought, well, they hate me. I'm the opposite of Sally Fields. They hate me. They really hate me. I thought what I did naturally was not acceptable. So it was a very difficult time for me. The next two albums, as the writer and a musician, I tried to be anyone else but myself. And I had no success at that. And then, accidentally, Lady is picked up by the most powerful radio station in Chicago, which is where we were, where the band is from. For reasons that have been explained to me by the guy who did this, the program director at WLS in Chicago, he decided to play it. Because by his own admission, he needed to compete with the new FM stations that were hitting the airways in 74. And he needed, wanted a more of a rock edge. He had played Lady at the first radio station he had been in two and a half years later. And he had risen to the prominence of the program director for WLS. So, unbeknownst to us, he played it. If he doesn't do that, you don't know me. You never hear it come sail away because they wouldn't have written it. So... We had a very long, hard slide to the top. Then we recorded a great album called Equinox and then Crystal Ball. So, grand illusion time. We were the bridesmaids. Sticks played behind every famous band in the middle to late 70s. And as the opening act or the warm-up act, whatever you want to call them, now they, they call them special guests. But 
we wondered, would we ever be in the position of having all the attention on the bride? So in 1976, we went out and played the Crater Festival in Honolulu. And we grew up in a working class neighborhood where most of the men worked at United States Steel, American Foundry, American Tag Company, places like that, lunchbox stuff. So there you are in Hawaii. So it was beautiful. So we came back and in Chicago that year was the worst winter that Chicago had witnessed in 30 years. And I had this incredible yearning to finally get to the top of my profession. And so I took those two ideas of Hawaii and the sailing and the yearning that I had to be in a better place, put them together into that song. So what you are responding to, I believe, is the fundamental underlying meaning in Come Sail Away, where whether it's on a boat and you're the captain of the ship or angels swoop down and raise you up or space aliens or even a starship takes you away. It's the idea of yearning to be in a better place and hoping that one of these things will happen to you and save me and save you from where you are right now. Let's go back to that point where you weren't hitting the way that you want to, which obviously for someone in my position is hard to imagine because I grew up with you guys all over the charts, right at the beginning of MTV, et cetera. How do you keep going at that moment when you are feeling like, hey, this isn't working out? Fear of failure. That's what drives us all. That's it. You can dress it up and be romantic about it. I had a quest. I had a vocation. I saw my... You were afraid to fail. That's a good motivator. I said in the Grand Delusion, America spells competition. Join us in our blind ambition and get yourself a brand new motor car. But someday soon we'll stop to ponder, what on earth this spell we're under? We made the grade and still we wonder who the hell we are. So my philosophy has always been that what drives us, fear is as much as anything else is a great motivator. When there's a crowd of people standing there and you jump up and down and wave your arms and demand attention and ask everybody to look at you, you better have something going. And for me, our fourth album, which I told you the story about Lady, we were going up to WLS to promote our fourth album, which was Man of Miracles. After that album was over with, we were out of business. Nobody else was going to sign us. We had no record success. And this guy goes, this program director, Jim Smith, goes into the past and, and picks the lady out of the thin air. So for me, I always knew how close we were to a complete failure. It made a, a big impression on me. But for me, I would have had to go back to being a school teacher. I would have been done in music if lady hadn't been a hit. I look at it and I think, wow, what a pivotal moment that it happened to me. It's unbelievable to me when I look back on it, how, how close we were to failure. Now, you said fear of failure, like you've thought about that a lot. And I, I hear what you're saying, that most people, maybe they dress it up, they say something different, but not everybody's as in touch with that right off the get-go. When did you know that being afraid to fail was something that was on your mind? Was that just in general? Was that just specifically about music because you didn't want to be a teacher? No, I think it was from the first time I picked up the accordion and you had to go be in a, a recital and you had to play in front of people. You didn't want to look bad. So here's something for you psychologists out there, you psychiatrists who read this magazine. Before a recital, I would actually get fully clothed in my nice little suit, 
and lay in the, in the bathtub, dry. There was no water in it. And just like, was I meditating? Was I nine, 10 years old? What was I doing in there? I don't know. Maybe I, th- I felt protected by the tub and thinking to myself, hey, I'd rather just sit here than go out there and play this accordion in front of people. The idea of fear of failure is wrapped up with the quest for perfection. My whole life, I've been in that quest. I think a lot of people who are creative and try to do stuff are really looking for the perfect painting, the perfect movie, the perfect melody. They know they're not going to get it, or they keep hoping they keep trying. They're all searching for the lost chord, knowing that you're going to fall short. That's also fear of not being good enough. I've often said, and I've said this for 35, 40 years, that People who are ambitious, people who are driven, are trying to please someone who cannot be pleased. Now, you can lay down on my couch and give me 200 bucks an hour, and I'll discuss who it is in your life. But I know who it is. It's either your mom or your dad. I would appreciate that. Is, that. is that an actual option, or is that, are we just saying that for effect? Because I, I would appreciate some Dennis DeYoung therapy. We yeah, can talk yeah, about that. All right, make it 400 bucks an hour. You know, right now, you became a writer, I take it, and you torture yourself over the right syntax in a sentence? Is it clear? Is it as brief and to the point as it can be? That's what we do. We're self-critical because we want the approval that we didn't feel we, we received by one of the parents. My theory is if your parents are the most supportive, sweet, kind, loving people in, in the world, you'll be a failure. That's it. A child needs someone as my aunt once told me, you know, your mother was a hard taskmaster, blah, blah, blah. She loved you to death. And I said, yeah, I know. And Irene, I understand all that. But I mean, it wasn't easy trying to live up to those expectations. And she said, well, everything you have right now is probably because of that fact. And there is no doubt about that. Am I giving you great insight? I'm feeling a lot of insight. Was it your mom or your dad you needed to please? I think that they would both be offended if, if they felt like I had to choose one over the other. I feel like they both wanted to contribute in this way. <laughs> If they listen yeah, to this and think to- I chose one, it's, it's, they're going to be like, wait a minute, what, what was I doing the whole time? Who was the one that was harder to please? That's an interesting question. I, I will tell you, I don't, I don't think either of my parents were necessarily hard to please. I think they just gave me like a pretty strong work ethic. I think it was more about that. I don't know if I was necessarily afraid of not succeeding per se, but I think I was afraid of not working hard. Lay down, son. We're going to have to dig deeper with you because you're resistant. You think I am? Absolutely. Because one of them was always more critical and always expected more. I'm not, let's not go any further than that because you can't afford me. <laughs> I don't think I can, but this is awesome. I'm, I'm a, we're going to talk about this afterwards. Moving from my deep, dark psychological problems, which are cumbersome. You write for psychology today. You didn't come here by accident, did you? Well, it's, it's worse. I'm actually a clinical psychologist by trade. Dear me. My daughter, it's just a few credits short of that, that degree. And I used to say to her, this is your life. If you want to hang around with people who are, they want to tell you their problems, no, life's too short for that. But that's your chosen profession. Somebody's got to do it. Glad it was you. Yeah. Do you know how much I like my job? I actually spend time on the side than talking to people about their different issues in these kind of conversations. You're, how fucked up is that? They thought. Yeah, you are. When you finally admit that, then you'll be free to fly like a butterfly. I'd be free to sail away, dare I say. (laughs) But doesn't that make sense? You're yearning to be someplace better. What you said about come sail away, you got it. I do. I feel like, oh my God, come sail away encapsulates my entire life. Then you know what? 
that's right, millions of people like it, I guess. When I play it, they join arms and sing it like, you know, it's a hymn. Good for them. I'm glad they can. That was me trying to work my problems out. I was frustrated when I say, I think of childhood friends and the dreams we had. We lived happily forever, so the story goes, but somehow we missed out on the pot of gold. That's me telling you how I felt about where Sticks was at that, that precise moment. And when I said that, it was a hit record because they told the tr truth. And when you're able to tell the truth, because deep inside we are all the same, it's a fundamental truth with humanity. When you hit on it, and I don't hit on it all the time, but I try to. When you hit on it, like I said, a lot of people come to your door. This is true. So let me ask you this. When you're doing classical music, one may argue, the idea is that there is a standard. There's a way of playing music, right? This is the way it's supposed to be played. The entire thing is a pursuit of that perfection through your own lens and your own vision. But essentially, there's a, there's a perfection there. But so much of what you do is also creative. It's actually writing the music. Right. And, and to a certain degree, I guess the question is creativity is a lot about being open and exploring, whereas perfectionism is really about honing in. And like you said, maybe driven by something like a fear of failure. So the question is, how do those things exist side by side? Right. How do you stay open enough to be creative, but then driven enough to make sure it's right? Classical music is slaves to the page. There can be interpretations to it, but it ain't jazz. You know what I mean? I suppose if the classical writers of today sit down, that music is really about playing sheet music. Where popular music, rock music, since the Beatles, there's been about personal expression. And although classical music and opera can be about personal expression, the people who play it these days, hundreds of years later, they are slaves to the page. Now, what I do is different than that. Most of classical music is trying to capture human emotion in purely musical terms, not lyrical. Most classical music is instrumental and they're trying to express feelings. Popular music, as we've come to know it for the last hundred and so years, is about personal expression through lyric writing. When I sit down to do something, I start out usually with the melody because I think melody is more important than lyrics, always and forever, because I see it in my concerts. I see it around the world. People who don't speak English like sticks music. <laughs> so that tells you the way it sounds and the melody and the harmonies and the rhythm are more important than the lyrics to lots of people. But when I try to put lyrics to those melodies, that's when I get a chance to tell you about myself. And that's the big difference between what you call like Mozart, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, any of those people. They're very different in art forms. I prefer mine. Well, I actually, quite frankly, prefer yours too. Not to judge classical music, but. I do prefer yours. So let me ask you this. When you write from a personal, you said that you write about different things. Sometimes it's about personal, sometimes it's about the world around you. Is it always from the personal experience? In other words, like it's a personal experience about something that's internal versus something that's personal about what's happening externally. Or do you sometimes kind of take it and say like, I'm going to try to get into this person's head or into this mindset over here? Sure. I've commented about what I have experienced in my life regarding the situation in the country we live in. I've made comments about things like that. I've done a lot of stuff. I've talked about technology 
and what I perceived as the threat of it a long time ago. I just wrote a song on my new album called You, My Love, which is about divorce. I've never been divorced, but I did see my daughters. And a songwriter has to be observational and watch human beings and how they behave to not only understand them, but himself and how he fits in. So when I saw the divorce of my friends or, or my daughter, I imagined myself, what, what are those feelings like if that happened to me? But I've written an album about, I have spent a lot of time talking about America and a lot of things I've written. And my new album right now talks about that, about this country an awful lot. Has anyone given you the new record? Absolutely. You have a fantastic publicist. He gave me the new record. Okay, good. It's my observation on, like I said in the beginning, not only my personal feelings, but the things I see around me, the worldview. So I've chosen a lot of different topics to write about. The ones that have been traditionally the most successful are my love songs. I think that's a combination of my firsthand experience with love, with my family, my wife. But it's also because it suits my voice. My singing style is suited for that kind of music, the big melodic gesture. It suits me. We work well together. It's not planned. It's accidental. Let's go back to the escapism thing. Because one of the things that's a little bit tricky about things like preventive health is you want people to be just anxious enough or just worried enough that they try to do something, but not so anxious that they're paralyzed, right? And so what's the role of escapism or fantasy? Let's just say escapism. Let's just, let's call it that at a time like this, right? Like when does it veer from, hey, this is good because it, it loosens things up a little bit. It gives you a little bit of a break. And now it's not good because you're really just not paying attention to what's going on. Well, I just did a video for With All Due Respect, the next single. And it's all about newscasting, blah, blah. I'm not going to get into it deeply, but it's a bunch of breaking news things are coming on the screen in front of you. Then the screen says, this just in, nobody knows nothing. But humility which is in such short supply in society, which has turned into this, everybody's in showbiz because of social media and the internet. When I started, people were in showbiz, they were in showbiz, now everybody is. And I find it dangerous, not because it impedes me in any way, because it certainly doesn't, but it's grandiosity, narcissism. Hey, look at me, I'm more important than you and everybody else. No, you're not. Deep inside, we are all the same. No matter how much money you make, how much success you have, we're fundamentally these creatures that are on Earth spinning through the universe, not knowing very much. We don't know very much. We knew more than people 100 years ago. This great equalizer has shown us how little we know. And as far as escapism, let me just say this. I had some fans a month ago ask me to please sing them some music like all the needy celebrities are doing from their home. And I, I gave in and I did it because they said they needed my music now more than ever. And I, my response was, I'll take a vaccine over this, my songs. Dear God, what are you thinking? Nonetheless, I did it. I sang it into an iPad and an auto-tuned piano in my family room, something I would never do. We got a million, 100,000 views. No, I don't get views like that, but something in the lyric and I guess the nostalgia of the song, The Best of Times, I mean, it struck a nerve. And if you want me to explain it, 
I can't. I'm glad it happened. I'm glad people found comfort. They told me, 9,000 of those took time to thank me on YouTube. And I, I see my name in that sentence that they write about me. But I'm not sure why my name is in that sentence, no matter how generous and kind the words are. And that's not false humility. It's my examination of the grand illusion that all us entertainers present. And I told my audience in 1977, don't be fooled by the radio, the TV, or the magazines. They'll show you photographs of how your life should be. They're just somebody else's fantasies. Because what we do in show business is we try to make life look better, more glamorous than you can imagine. And why? Come on, to sell you something. That's what advertisement does. That's what people in show do. We're selling you CDs. We're selling you albums, cassettes, concert tickets. I told the audience, that's what we're doing here. And you shouldn't be fooled that somehow we are all knowing we are not. Because deep inside, we're all the same. Let's get back to the whole concept of fear of failure. Because one of the things that you're describing is the cycle. Let's just take your premise that me and everybody else, is some kind of fear of failure that we know about or we don't know about. Okay. Now, you have a vehicle for dealing with that. Right. And so maybe we should start with that. As you played music, as you became more successful, did the fear of failure go away? Never. How come? Well, I guess it is fear, not failure, but not being good enough. Same thing. Not being good enough is almost the same thing to me. And what is the standard for that? Well, it's individual. Some people hold themselves to a higher standard. And I think it has to do with, once again, never feeling that you were quite good enough. I exude confidence on stage and in my life in general, because I know I'm no dummy. But in the core of all of us is self-doubt. And those of us who exhibit the most narcissistic, braggadocious behavior are the ones that are probably doubting the most. It's compensatory. Yeah, but in some cases, so this is where it gets tricky, right? So let's, let's make a contrast here. Okay, let's just, let's just say that you did it as compensatory and you became super successful, right? You built a career, you sold all those albums, you sold out all those shows, okay? Now, there's people on the internet that are, like you're saying, it's sort of like maybe they, maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't be heard. How do you know when to continue with that pursuit? You know what I mean? Because like you said, like even you, somebody who has all the success, it's like you were kind of surprised. Oh, all of a sudden I had a million views, right? And how do people get out of their heads the possibility that, hey, if I just keep going with this, maybe I'll be famous. It's kind of, it's got a narcotic feel to it. You know what I mean? It's an escape in and of itself. So when do you know when to stop? I think when reality invades and it's cruel, you know, somebody will say, hey, your rent is due. Maybe you ought to go to barber college. Was that from your perspective? Would that have been the differential back when, when you were felt like, okay, we're not getting quite as much attention. It, it felt like, okay, we're at the point now where we're not getting the feedback that we want. We're not getting the money that we want. It's a numbers game. People record companies used to give you money to make records. If you sold enough, they would give you a chance to make more. That's a numbers game. It's money. That's all it is. If you can't pay the freight, you don't get the opportunity. Then it's the same thing when you ask me, when do you know when to quit? Well, when reality invades, your rent is due. 
your phone bill. You want to be this guy, you want to go mold clay or whatever it is, you want to write great novels. It's all numbers and reality based. That's what'll make you stop. Yeah. And that's, I think that's one of the things that people have the toughest time with, right? Because so many people who have gotten to where you are, right? And in whatever area of their life have done it specifically because they kept going. Maybe they kept going at risk of money. Maybe they got at risk of family or friends or time or health or whatever it may be. Right. And yet there's all the, and there's always going to be these people who say, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. It's a very tricky thing for a lot of people because let's say they have that fear of failure. Let's say they want to compensate by doing great things. And you're saying like, okay, like when reality sets in, I would have to imagine for you that there were people saying, hey, being a rock and roll guy is not necessarily reality. But you blew past that. No, being a rock and roll guy is reality. I make a song, you either buy or you don't. When I put on a concert, it's simple. You either buy a ticket or you don't. And reality is when they don't buy them and they don't buy tickets, you're dead. It's over. That's what I mean by reality. It's a numbers game. It's a business. I make these things. If people buy, it's like making sneakers, gym shoes. I made Nike put this new thing out and nobody bought it. Well, whoever came up with that idea, go work elsewhere. It's simple. It's numbers. That's an encroach on creativity. If you're painting and you can't afford the rent, for your studio or wherever you're, you're, you can't afford the oil paint, the brushes. See what I mean? That's when it's over. So would you recommend somebody now, if they were starting out based on that concept, would you recommend that they get like a solid day job that allows them to pursue their music so that they never have to make that decision? Or would you say, listen, you got to go all in on your music. And if at some point it's not paying the bills, you just got to get out. Advice is the worst vice. I got no advice for anybody, but I know three things. Perseverance. Perseverance, number one. Talent. And the universe spinning in your direction. Those are the three ingredients for success, no matter how you slice it. But, you know, when you give up, like I said, when the numbers don't work. But you have to have some talent. I mean, very few people become successful with no talent. And the universe has got to land on your number once in a while. I know a lot of talented people that just never got the right break, the right opportunity. That's the universe. And I don't think it's making judgment calls. All right. Let's think. We've covered some good topics here. What have we left well, out? Well, you've dreamed a dream. God forbid it comes true. Now tell me more about that. God forbid it comes true. Why would, you, why would you feel that way? Because you're going to realize what you thought the dream would do for you, it won't do. Which is? Make you feel whole make you feel that the sacrifices were worth it. The best part about what happened to me in the final analysis is perhaps I left some small mark on the world, small. And I was able to provide very nicely from my family, which is never to be discounted. Never. When your dream comes true, then what? You didn't feel whole when you were playing music? We finally hit it with the Grand Illusion and sold uh, 4 million albums? No. I thought I'd feel better. I felt the same. Hmm. No, I'm curious about that. Now, do you feel like that that's because this was about some kind of fear of failure and, and that never went away? Talk to any real successful person. And if they're honest, they'll tell you, you were trying to fill up a hole, a void, a need 
for approval. And then when you got there, despite the fact that you got the approval, it didn't feel like it was enough. It didn't feel like it did its job. Anybody who tells the truth that has been successful will tell you that. It gets into kind of a tricky area. Then why keep doing it? I guess it's, it's all you know. But B, it does become who you are. It's very interesting because when I hear about people who do this kind of work and they're not necessarily happy, and I think that one of the things that, that people don't realize is that if you've got this burning desire in you, you've got this thing that needs to come out. It's not really a pleasant thing to have. You know, it's fun for a lot of people to go and they'll sing songs. I mean, there's all this research that shows that creativity and doing artistic things is good mentally, it's good physically, but that's very different than somebody who's got this burning thing in them. Like you said, this kind of burning hole that needs to come out. And you could see how quickly people could deteriorate with that because it's like, you think you're doing something that's making it better but you're not. And as time goes on, you could see how someone would just get more and more hopeless because maybe you thought that, like you could say it now looking back, but I'm kind of curious for you, like how did that not just get, just drag you down? I mean, here you are, like you say, you're in your seventies, you're still doing it. I think mankind has moved forward because of crazy people like us. We go and do things in a quest to do one thing, other good things are accomplished. That's it. We need those people who will at all costs, try to move the ball forward. Even if it was for personal reasons, others benefited. Did you benefit by come sail away? You told me you did. 100%. There it is. We seem to have this like, this kind of like shitty relationship with our rock stars. This almost like abusive thing for that very reason. Like I need you to go out there on a limb because I can't, right? So by definition, like my relationship to you is almost one of using, right? Like you're valuable to me because you wrote Come Sail Away, right? You're valuable to me because you wrote these songs. And then if there's something that you do that's not, or you step out or something happens, a lot of fans will then, they'll stop showing up or even worse now with, with social media, they'll be antagonistic. And I don't know that to me, it kind of sucks because I don't know to what extent, and you can tell me if you disagree, but does that, it, it doesn't really foster those people wanting to take those risks. Or maybe it does based on what you're saying, because that, that creates that fear of failure in people. That's the pact we have. You like me, you follow me. You don't like me, you understand that going in. If you fail to make the punters, the audience, feel you're worthy of their money, did I say this is a numbers game? Then they have every right to disengage and jump ship. I know that. I have no animus whatsoever toward fans who say, eh, I grew out of this guy. We don't need this load anymore. Okay. It's your money. It's your time. If you don't like this stooge, there's another 5,000 waiting to get in here. You don't owe me a thing. Hmm. You surprised? 100% not. Okay. I dig it. That's why you wanted to talk to me. Let me ask you just one more question on the failure thing. Do you think that personally it would have been better to think about at some point hey, I don't want to operate from this fear model. I personally like operating from that model a little bit. It's upsetting to live in that world, to be that kind of person. Have you ever thought to yourself, hey, you know what? Maybe I should just kind of think about, hey, this fear of failure thing doesn't work. Let me just be good with myself. Here's the deal. 
this morning, he said to my wife, I have to get up and do this thing. When I'm done with you, they're going to do a sound check for a big thing I have to do tomorrow again from the Zoom. I said to my wife, I said, Jesus, when does this stop? <laughs> I'm 73. Well, it stops when I say so. So that's why I said this is my last album. I don't need it anymore. I hope you enjoy this one. I'm done. That's it. But until I am done, I'll give you the best I got. I love it. Well, I think we've come there to the go. end of our time. We had a good chat. We did have a good chat. I appreciate it. All right, my friend. All right, we'll talk. Thanks. All right, take care. So there you have it. Dennis DeYoung talking about how he harnessed a fear of failure to pursue his purpose as a musician that has fueled a hugely successful career that persists to this day. I really appreciated Dennis's honesty about a very tough subject, which is that if you harness the energy of fear, in this case, fear of failure, you might achieve your goals, but the fear does not necessarily go away. In listening to Dennis, it's important to consider that whenever you are trying to fulfill an aspect of your life's purpose, you want to make sure that your goal towards that purpose matches both your efforts and your evaluation of your progress. So if your purpose in life is to be a rock star and your goal towards that purpose is to sell a million records, putting your effort into writing great songs, practicing all the time, and touring relentlessly makes sense. And if you have a platinum record, you did it. You're a rock star. But this is a different path than if your purpose is to eradicate your fear of failure. Sure, selling a million records may do the trick, but it may not. Maybe your goal is to understand the origin of that fear of failure. And in that case, there are other efforts such as therapy, connecting with others, and meditation that may more directly address that goal. There is a lot of ongoing experimentation in pursuing your purpose in life. Just make sure that whatever path you take, you are always checking in to make sure that your goals, efforts, and outcomes are in line with your purpose. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero Music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.